Hey, we're glad you're here, and we are, as I said, diving into springtime, so we're very excited about that, building up to Easter, and uh, I have a series for us. It's entitled Defining Moments, uh, and so we're literally going to be looking at defining moments in the life of Christ that build up to the cross. Now, there's, you know, Jesus, he lived like 33 years, right? And, uh, and so, but all, he was not released really to start his ministry until he was like at the age of 30. And so uh, we capture, thank God we capture, the Gospels capture uh, what we capture about his life and about everything. And kind of as he came onto the scene, his cousin John the Baptist was his forerunner. And God, um, God began to move in a fresh new way. You've got to remember that from the, from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament, there was 400 years of like silence, you know. Like, like absolute silence. The people had been hearing about the message. The prophets had been prophesying and proclaiming that, hey, you know, he, he's coming. There's one coming, you know, and Isaiah talked about him. The Psalms talk about him. He's coming. He's coming. Could you imagine going through like 400 years and not hearing a freshness, a new word or anything, you know? But God, here's what we need to understand. God is, God is always on time. Did you know that? He's always on time with his plan. He's always on time in our life. It's hard to be patient. Many of us are like the little girl. We pray, God, give me patience right now. And that's kind of our prayer life sometimes, regardless of where, you know, or maybe wherever we're at and what we're going through. And you just need to know and rest in God and be patient and know that he is a God of purpose. He's a God of plan and that he's going to get us through. He's going to get us to the other side. He said, get in the boat. We go into the other side. And so let your faith literally be strengthened no matter how deep the waters, no matter how the waves are crashing in. Be a God pleaser. That's the takeaway for today in this first defining moment that we're going to look at in the life of Jesus as we talk about the verdict, all right? We're going to fast forward uh, about, about what is going on in the life of Jesus leading up to the cross. And so uh, there's a verdict uh, that basically uh, that he is involved with and that he is called to. And so uh, our takeaway is it's always better to be a God pleaser than a man pleaser. It's always better to be a God-pleaser than a man-pleaser. And so there's defining moments that we see in the life of Christ, but there's also defining moments in our life, okay? And, and the greatest defining moment in your life that initiates this start uh, with, the, with the Lord Jesus and, the, and what we really exist for literally as a church to help people find this direction in life, and that direction only comes to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the defining moment in your life. There's a defining moment that'll be in your life, and the reason that defining moment will be in your life is because of the heartbeat of Jesus Christ and his desire for you to find life and to find life in him. So you've got your own defining moment. Now, some of us can go back and say, hey, this was my defining moment. This is how it happened. This is how the Spirit spoke clearly to me. This is how the enemy spoke to me, uh, trying to get me not to do what God wanted me to do in my life. It was a defining moment. And so we're going to talk about that. And in those defining moments in your life, you have a decision to make. Am I going to please God in this and honor Him? Or am I going to cow to the pressure? Am I going to cow, uh, you know, to uh, wanting to be popular and, and, and cow to the demands of the world and do want to be more like the world and give in and not take a stand for God? So defining moments, and as we look at the life of Jesus early on in his ministry, uh, we see that he was outperforming miracles, and those miracles demonstrated to the people that he was the Son of God. Now, everybody didn't want to believe that. 
In fact, his own people got very upset about these miracles that he's performing, and they begin to get very upset, the chiefs and rulers. They begin to get very upset right out of the beginning uh, that people were seeing these miracles and that people were starting to believe in this man. And so he performed many miracles. We look at his, in his early ministry, in his, in his three years of ministry leading up to the cross, we see his motive. His motive basically proved that he was the Son of God. We see his motive in his heartbeat in that he said, that he, he came with the intention above all other intentions um, to seek and to save the lost. And so he basically was not willing that any should perish. And that was his motive for coming. He said, I didn't come for the well, but the who? The sick. The sick. And, and so that's me. Anybody else sick in here? Like you, you, you were sick, right, at one point without Jesus? I'm not talking about your sinuses and all that stuff and the flu. If you got the flu, you need to go home. You shouldn't have come. Uh, I'm joking. All right. And um, well, I'm not really, but anyway, maybe you don't know you got the flu, so I wouldn't want you to be offended. Um, but, but Jesus, he said, I didn't come for the well. And what he meant in that was it's not physical. He wasn't talking about physical. He's talking about spiritual. He said, he, he's literally saying, he's not saying I don't care about people who's in this well category. He's saying, I can't help them. He's talking about the Pharisees, and he's talking about people who literally act like they got it all together on the outside, but inside they are crumbling. Inside they are evil. They are wicked. They are vile. And that was kind of the Pharisees and the people like that. He said they think they got it all together. He said they think they, 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 you know, they got no issues. They got no problem. Uh, and literally they're full of fluff. He said God can see right through it and see the inside. He's like, I can't help a person like that. They're so much full of themselves that they won't die to their pride and, um, and, and allow me to come in and change their life. And, and they're, more, they're more trying to promote how good they are at uh, uh, you know, fulfilling the law, and they don't even understand grace. And so he said, I can't help a person like that until they come to that realization. And then in his ministry, we see this ministry that he came to be a minister, literally a servant. Mark 10, 45, he said, I didn't come to, uh, to be served, but I come to give my life a ransom for many. Now, why that's so important is, is that that's one of the things that the Jewish leaders could not stand about him. They could not stand this servanthood mindset and this concept. And we'll talk about more of that in, the, in a minute. And then we see this mindset that he had. This mindset, and the reason this mindset is so important is that when the Spirit of God moved your heart, if you're a Christ follower and you're a believer, you signed up to develop this same mindset. Did you know that? You signed up to develop this same mindset, literally, and that's what pleases God. But the mindset that we signed up for when we said, I'm going to follow Christ and I want a relationship with you, the mindset we signed up for is totally in contradicts the mindset that we're taught in the world and that we see in the world. Because in the world, we're taught to look out for good old number who? Good old number one. Don't you step on me. You know what I'm saying? Don't you hurt me. I'll hurt you back. I'll get even. I, I, I got rights. You know what I'm saying? Don't you know my rights? And so we're, we're looking out for good old number one, the world says. But here's the mindset Jesus said. Let me just read this to you real quick. Uh, Philippians 2, 5 through 11 said, Have this mind among yourself, which is also in, was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled, selfish people can't humble themselves, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, which is like the most wicked and vile death. And we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. Therefore, verse 9, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What that literally is saying is everybody going to bow down to Jesus, right? Everybody going to confess. Now, the biggest question about that confession taking place and that defining moment in everyone's life is, is when that happens. When that happens, that changes everything. That changes like whether you're safe or whether you're going to be in destruction the rest of your life. So if you confess him now, literally, while you're breathing, while you're living, and you respond to the Holy Spirit of God when he draws on your heart, and I'm telling you, he'll draw on your heart because he's not willing that any should perish. And he's going to draw on your heart when you hear the truth of God's love, when you set on the word of God, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And so you're going to have that opportunity. You're going to have a defining moment to say, okay, what am I going to do? Am I going to respond? Am I going to literally want to initiate this relationship with Jesus Christ and literally follow him and deny deny myself and take up my cross and follow him and be molded uh, uh, into the image of of Christ? Or am I going to buckle to the pressure and go, no, that's going to cost me. Because if I do that, the enemy says, if you do that, you know you're going to have to stop doing this. If you do that, you know you're not even going to be able to hang with these people anymore. If you do that, you know the people you go to school with and hang with are going to make fun of you and ridicule you. If, if you do that, you know you're going to have to quit shacking up under that roof when you're not married to that person. You know there's going to be some standards that the Bible calls for in living like Christ that you're going to have to weed some stuff out of your life. And so the enemy, the devil, will begin to paint all these things in a way, in a negative way for you to look at this situation in a negative way and for you to cow down to the, the pressures and what it's going to cost you. But Jesus is not that way. Jesus never, just think about Jesus, he never inflicts that kind of negative thinking. He never inflicts anything on you that would lead you away from what is best for you. Only Satan will do that. Only the enemy will do that. God's plan and God's way and God's standard is always the best. And so, and, and so that's important that we, under, that we realize that. And then not just his mindset, but his men. This is what encourages me. And I'm talking about his men, the people that he placed around him. His original 12 that he placed, and then boom, it began to impact us all. But his men that he placed around him. What kind of men did he place around him? You know what the Bible said? The Bible said they were ignorant. That's why it encourages me. You know, God can use anybody, right? The Bible says they were untrained. The Bible says that basically he didn't, he, he didn't call the qualified, as we've heard. He qualified the called. The Bible says he didn't go after all those that had it all together in their pretty little temple attire and their pretty little outfits and, their, and, and, and pretty little law-abiding citizens that wanted to brag about how they could keep the law, but they didn't understand grace. No, he went after the outcast. He went after sinners in need of a Savior. That was his heartbeat. That was everything he lived for. And I want you to make this connection, or I do want you to make this connection, because it is our heartbeat. If you're a guest today, say, what is the heartbeat of this church? Can I just tell you, the heartbeat of this church is to honor God. The heartbeat of this church is to have the same compassion that Jesus had. And I'll just quite frankly tell you, the heartbeat of this church is to be different. Different. Now, it's a shame that I have to say that we have to be different But the church historically has gotten so off course to what Jesus left us to do and what he left us for that you've got to be different now to reflect his heartbeat. Is that not a shame? You got to be, so what have you got to be different? The thing that Jesus modeled in his ministry and the thing you're going to see with the very thing that his own people had an issue with and the rulers that were 
boy, go into the temple, and boy, they all look like one another, and boy, they had their nice attire on, and boy, if you walked in and you wasn't one of them, you felt judged, and you would know it. And boy, if you were, if you were running around and you were sinning and you were living in adultery and they came to you, they didn't come to you to tell you about a God that loves you and a good, good father that can set you free. They came to you to parade you right in front of Jesus Christ to try to get him in a trap and make you feel like a piece of trash. And if you, and, and if you were like um, others in the Bible who were living in sin that I'll mention in just a minute and how God changed their life, if you were like them, well, then, I, then I tell you what, uh, boy, you, you, you didn't have no place or no part around these people that had everything together and had their, had their little country club of perfection. What are you saying? I'm saying that same enemy that worked through the Jewish people and the same enemy that sets this mindset up of that I'm perfect, I got everything in my life together, and, and, and you know, and we all look like one another, and everybody knows everybody says to the outside world, we don't want outcasts. We don't want jacked up people with jacked up problems. And that's why, that's why we intentionally desire to be different because there's a lost and dying world outside the four walls, and the, they never see, they never see, unfortunately, in most cases, the ones in the highways and hedges and the one outside, they, they, they want nothing to do with what their perception of church is. Because when they think of church, they think of, unfortunately, what church has become, a building with steeples of people who seem to have everything together in their life and seem to be, you know, living up to the same kind of mindset many times that the Pharisees was. And when the outcasts come in, they don't feel drawn by the love and compassion of Christ. And they're not going to come in because they never see the church going out. And the church is the ecclesia to be the called out ones. And that's why our heartbeat is literally say, God, make us different. Make us different. Make us to where that, that, that literally those who are far from Christ will find life in Christ. So Matthew 27, we're going we're gonna, to, how does this all tie together, all right? How does this tie together uh, in the defining moments in the life of Christ? How does it affect our defining moment and moments that we'll have in life? And so Matthew 27, look at verse uh, 1 and 2, starting right out of the gate. Matthew 27, 1 and 2, he says, When morning came, it says, All the chief priests and the scribes of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now let me say real quick before we read verse 11 through 25, what is going on in this situation is, is these, these chief scribes, these chief leaders, and these, uh, uh, these Pharisees, they are, they are upset. They're sick and tired of hearing about the miracles. They're sick and tired of seeing people follow Jesus Christ. He is not the Messiah they want. He is not the king. He totally contradicts the type of Messiah that they are looking for. And so they don't want him. They don't want this king. They don't want this Messiah that God has sent in a manger who didn't even have a, 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 a proper place to be brought into the world and was, and was born in darkness in a, in a lowly, stinky stable and, and all this. Place. That's not the kind of king they wanted. They wanted a king with royalty. They wanted a political, political, king, political king, and so they did not want this king. They didn't want him, and so it, that's what's happening in verse 1 and 2. So they devise a plan, okay? They get together, and they meet together. They're so bothered by it, they devise a plan, but they realize they're kind of in a scenario and situation where people started to believe this man. People started to follow this man. And so what they do is devise a plan, and before everybody else gets up, they get up around 5 a.m. in the morning, right? And they get together, and they take Jesus before the crowds, before his followers can do anything about it, and they go straight to Pilate. 
And they go to Pilate because even when they would go to their own Jewish leaders, their own Jewish leaders uh, basically might try to appease them, but their own Jewish leaders could not bring the verdict about. They could not bring Jesus to a point to where he could be killed and crucified. It had to be a Roman leader that could do that. And so they take him to Pilate, and they, they, they wake Pilate up in the morning, you know, which I'm sure is frustrating for him. And so they go early in the morning, and they bring all this together. And then here's where we look at verse 11 through 25, and then we're going to look at some questions and realities uh, in this text, see what we can learn from it and what difference it makes in our life. Now, Jesus, verse 11, stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, this is Pilate he sent for, are you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priest and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, verse 15, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, check this out, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. Righteous man for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So they had rallied up their Jewish people. They had rallied up the ones they had been meeting with. And they had rallied them together to say, we've got to go and, we, and we've got to basically bring this verdict about and force this verdict. So and, uh, they, they gathered them together to ask for Barabbas. Verse 21, the governor again said to them, which of these two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, now here's, here's what you need to know right here, this question. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, defining moment in the life of Pilate, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See it to it yourselves. No, it's not that easy, Pilate. And verse 25, and all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children, which is very scary. Then he released, Pilate released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. He's trying to wash his hands because he's still struggling in his defining moment. So the first question is this for all of us. What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? Everybody has to answer that question. Every person who's ever been born has to answer this defining question. What am I going to do with this man named Jesus Christ? What am I going to do with him? And so even though the Jewish leaders are bringing him to Pilate, and Pilate's trying to kind of put it off on them, he himself realizes it's a defining moment to where he's having to answer this question. And he can't shuck the responsibility of it. And there's a weightedness that's coming on him because of having to answer this question. Goodness gracious, I'm Pilate. I'm the judge. I'm the leader. Why am I sitting here shaking and trembling in fear? It's the Jewish people that's brought him to me. But I'm uncomfortable about this situation. My wife's having dreams about this situation. She's warning me. And it's his defining moment in his own life to try to figure out who this man is. And that's what he does. So every person, here's the first reality. Every person must decide at some point what they're going to do with Christ. 
When you look at the Bible, you see biblical examples. You see biblical examples of like Matthew. Matthew was a tax collector. He was one of those that, man, the, the, the Pharisees and the, and the rulers, you know, and the Jewish people, man, they ridiculed Jesus. Man, look at him. He's hanging out with these nasty sinners. He's a drunkard. He's hanging out with these guys. He's a drunkard. He's hanging out in, 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 in those environments, and Jesus was doing it because these were some of the men that he was, God was going to use to shake the world, turn it upside down. Zacchaeus, another wicked tax collector that had robbed the people, heard that Jesus was coming through, had heard about his miracles, and deep down was absolutely answering the question, uh, but what am I going to do with this man named Jesus? Asking the question, can, I wonder if he could really help me because I really don't want to be this little wicked guy. I really don't want to, but there's something in me that doesn't want to be this way. Maybe, maybe this man can help me. So we climbed a sycamore tree to see. And so Jesus came by, divine appointment, absolutely rocked his world, changed his life. Nicodemus, a wise teacher of the law, he couldn't, he knew something was different about Jesus. And he looked at him and he said, look, there's no way. He said, there's something about you now. There's something about you. There's no way you could do these things unless it were from God. And Jesus walked him through the whole transformation conversation of you must be born again. And he was talking about spiritual birth, not physical birth. And it clicked with Nicodemus, and it made a difference in his life. So different that he was there at the end to even help um, take care of the body of Jesus. Now, so we see uh, the woman at the well. It absolutely changed her life. Come see a man has told me everything. And so it began to, she began to process it. The Ethiopian eunuch, man, reading Isaiah, God, the Spirit of God told Philip to overtake the chariot. He went down and he said, do you understand? And he said, how can I understand what I'm reading unless somebody that's got life explains it to me? Somebody who, who literally knows what this means explains it to me. And so uh, Philip explained it to him, and boom, right there, the Holy Spirit changed his heart and life. He was baptized, uh, joined Team Jesus, the thief on the cross. Even in the darkest moments of Jesus, when Satan was trying to bring everything, and Satan was trying to bring the fame and bring his A-game and thought he had him, and Jesus was being mocked and ridiculed and persecuted, even in that darkest moment, even in that defining moment, guess what happens? God says, I'm still in the life-giving business. And so he takes one of the thieves. When one of the thieves is bad-mouthing Jesus, he takes this other thief, and he moves his heart to salvation. And he looks at Jesus, believing that he is the Son of God. And he says, remember me today in paradise. After pretty much telling the other thief, you know, hey, you need to quit giving this guy such a, such a hard time. And God revealed to him. And so God gave life even in a dark situation. The Roman soldier, after the darkness, after the earthquake, after it was all over, and he had had a part with the mocking and the ridiculing and the persecution. And he looks up, and under the, the Spirit of God moving in that situation, he goes, Wow. Surely this man was the Son of God. Wow. Surely this man was the was the Son of God. And I believe there's a work that was done there about his heart. Now, we see those that didn't respond so well either in their defining moment. The Pharisees. The Pharisees, they didn't, they didn't like him. They didn't want him. They, 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 they act like they had it all together. They wanted to brag on how they could fulfill the law. They wanted to do what so many today are doing in occultic religions, is they wanted to say, hey, look what I bring to the table. They wanted to say, my good's going to outweigh my bad because I'm such a good person in comparison to this person over here, to this outcast person to this thief, to this robber, to this stealer. So, so they tried to toot their own horn, literally, I guess you could say. The rich man in Lazarus, remember the rich man in Lazarus? Yeah, rich man, man, he didn't care about anybody. He didn't care about the beggar. He didn't even want to give him the crumbs. He let the dogs lick the sores rather than take care of those who were in need, rather than give them a cup of cold water, Jesus said, rather than clothe them when they're naked. When did we see you naked, Jesus? When you did it unto the least of these. But not the rich man, because the rich man was about the rich man. 
The rich man didn't have time for the outcast, but oh, I tell you what, he wanted to make time when he hit the flames of hell, didn't he? He wanted, he wanted one more opportunity to have, an, have that defining moment back when God was trying to move his heart and speak to him through a beggar. And he, he, he wanted it back then. So he started calling out and he said, Lord, I need, some, I need some water. Just one drop would kind of be nice right now because I'm in torment. I'm in pain. Somebody warned my family, this place is bad. The rich man who walked away sad when he said, oh, I'm good at upholding the law. And Jesus said, are you? You really want to follow me? Oh, yeah, I do. I love you. I, I, I love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I love my neighbors, myself, you know. I, I'm in this thing, Jesus. I'm in it. I'm in it. Jesus said, you in it? You really want in it? I really want in it. Okay. Well, there's only one other thing I see that you need to do in your heart. What's that? You need to go sell all that stuff you got. You need to go sell all your possessions because you're rich. You need to go sell it all and come follow me. And the Bible says he put his head down and he walked away sad. Why? Because it was a defining moment in his life whether or not he was going to put his faith in Jesus Christ and the Son of God and totally deny himself, take up his cross and follow him, or if he was going to put his faith in his possessions. And he put his faith in his possessions. Just like many people do today. It was a defining moment, and he, and he lost the battle. Now, Jesus to Pilate in verse 11. This is interesting when you look at verse 11, because Pilate's having his own defining moment, and Jesus says, he, he asked him, you know, basically in verse 11, he said, um, he said, are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate is literally investigating in this, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And it's neat how Jesus responds because Jesus discerns that Pilate is having this defining moment. And he's, he's basically saying, um, uh, you know, what do you think of me? You say that I am. You've heard. You've heard about the miracles, Pilate. You had not been under a rock. You've heard. You're sitting here having a meet. What's going on inside you right now? What's going on inside your spirit right now? You at peace? You, but why, why are you shaking? Why are you trembling? You're, you're, you're the leader here. And Pilate being the leader who has the authority to make this decision, who shouldn't be worried, who shouldn't be in fear, who shouldn't be trembling, might be frustrated because of the Jewish leaders, but even has the right just to cast them out in the whole situation. Now, he is literally the one shaking and trembling, and he's looking into the eyes of Jesus, who they're wanting to kill and crucify, and he sees just a total peace and calmness. It wigs him out. It wigs him out. And so he's like, he's asking questions for himself. So what, what are you going to do with Jesus? That's the first question. Second question, what do you do when your own want nothing to do with you? What do you do when your own want nothing to do with you? Can anything good come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel asked? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, Nathaniel figured out that there could be because he literally puts his faith in him. But can anything good? And the other people around Jesus, you ever noticed this? Remember, he lived 29 right at 30 years before he started his ministry, and then when he started performing these miracles, and then when he started basically claiming the people saw that he, he was claiming to be the Son of God, and not just the Son of God, but God, which the Pharisees got so upset with, and the Sadducees, and they didn't believe in the resurrection. And so basically he's claiming all these things, and, and the people in his own hometown said, the carpenter's son? The, the carpenter's son that grew up among us? He, he's the Son of God? Yeah, right. We've lived around him. I mean, that would be like us living in the context of the community we live in. And after 30 years, somebody's been living here, like put your place in their shoes. And all of a sudden, they go, yep, Brent Chambers. He's the son of God. So I can walk on water the other day at the Smokegrass Pool. Like, what? 
what were you smoking in Bunn County? You know what I'm saying? Or Jefferson County or wherever you are, Walker County. That's what we got at Walker County. I'm joking. All right. But anyway, you know, what were you on? What were you, what were you smoking? You know, there's no way, man. I've known Brent Chambers for 29, 30 years, man. He didn't feed no, he didn't feed no 15,000 people on two different accounts out of a little bit of Captain Disease, you know, uh, or Long John Silver. There's no way that he did that. Oh, yeah, 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 he's the son of God. I saw him do things with my own eyes. I'm following him. I'm believing in him. But it was hard in his hometown. It was hard in his hometown. And literally, it was hard for his own people, his Jewish people, who he was basically uh, a Jew and a representation of the Jewish people. And what do you do when your own want nothing to do with you? What do you do? Well, here's the second reality. He came unto his own, and his own received him not, John 1.11. The chief priests and leaders, here was their mindset. And that's what verse 1 and 2 is about and why they devised this plan. They were sick and tired of this man. They did not want him. They wanted a political king. They wanted, they wanted a king that would come in and overthrow the Roman dominion that they were under suppression to. And they didn't like a king who came in riding on this little donkey, riding lowly, uh, you know, with a bunch of wacky people waving palm branches. And some of them got it and some of them didn't get it. But they didn't want a king who came in and said, you know what? I'm not here for you to serve me. And I'm not here to overthrow the Roman government like you think I am. I'm going to actually wind up loving them and offering my grace to them and to the Gentiles just like I am, you pride. Jews. And they didn't like it. They didn't like the message. It rocked their world. They didn't like it that when Jesus had conversation with them. And as I said, the conversation they got most upset with in the Bible and where you see the most conversation with them and Jesus is, is when Jesus stood up adamantly in their face and he declared to be God. They went bananas. They went crazy. They ripped their attire. Blasphemy. Blasphemy. Do you know what? They, they didn't want to accept the fact and like, and like the fact at all that he was the son of God. But can I tell you something? And the devil doesn't like the fact that he's the son of God. And devils, demons are smarter than atheists, right? For those of you who haven't heard that. Why are the demons smarter than an atheist? Because demons know God. And they don't just know him, they admit it. And you see that in the Bible and you see proof of that. That demonic people, when they came and encountered Jesus, or encountered people full of the Spirit who had the authority to cast out demons, which we as believers do when we walk in the authority of the Holy Spirit. They literally, the demons would speak out of those people and say, I know you. You're the Holy One of God. Because of that power and authority, yet people want to walk around and say, ah, there's no God. There's no God. Yet the heavens declare His glory. But these, these Jewish people, they didn't want, this man eats with sinners. They said in John, John's account, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have brought him to you. But yet they really got nothing on him. But you know what upsets the devil and the enemies of hell more than Jesus declaring and more than Jesus being the Son of God? You know what upsets them worse than that fact? That he's God. That's what upsets them. That he's God. Now, why would it upset Lucifer so much that when he looks at Jesus, and why did it upset the people, the Jewish leaders and the Pharisees so much over that? Why did, why did that upset them more than anything? The fact of his deity declaring that he was God and he was God in the flesh. I'll tell you why, because if you'll go back to Lucifer, you'll remember that he couldn't humble himself, that he did want equality with God. He did want to be in the dynamic of the Trinity 
And the Trinity is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He wanted in that fame, but he didn't want to bow to God to do it. And so when he looks at Jesus, yes, he knows he's the Son of God, but when he looks at him that he's God? You get, do, you, do you make this connection right here? Are you making this connection? Lucifer wanted that same fame to be God or like God or as high as God, and now he knows he's been cast out of heaven because of his pride, and he's looking, and Jesus is a representation and a reflection of a man who humbled himself, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, came as a servant, died on a cross to take away the sin of the world, and every time Satan thinks about it, it makes him sick because he couldn't humble himself. You say, you got proof of that today? You better believe I've got proof of it. Occultic religions. They'll talk the talk. They'll act like they're walking the walk. They'll bring so, the devil will bring so much light into good things. You say, what are you talking about? I'll call them out. I'm talking about Mormonism. I'm talking about the cute little commercials with the hood up on the car and the little bicycle and the wacky khakis uh, coming by, you know what I'm saying? And it being all sweet and joyful and, and helpful and what I do that's good and my good works and all these things. And, and, and we're okay with Jesus, and we worship the same Jesus. Oh, we worship the same Jesus? Yeah, yeah, we worship the same Jesus. Okay, can you tell me that you believe John 1, 1 in the beginning was Jesus? The Word, the Logos, he was with God, and he was God? Mm, I can't line up with that, not if I truly know what my belief's teaching. Yeah, and you know what? The enemy wants you to continue to believe that, and it'll take you straight to hell. truth. Jehovah's Witness, cultic religion. It's not that these people are running around doing crazy and bad things and harming people. The devil works in many forms. He works in many deceiving forms. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was not, they didn't see the harm and the bad and the negativity in it. It looked good. It appealed to them. It looked good, man. To know both good and evil, to be like God. Could God be ripping me off and, and all of a sudden the enemy's got me questioning the integrity of God? It looked good and it was a trap and it was dangerous. The enemy was working behind. And that's why I say Christianity is separated from all other religions because that's what separates us. There's two facts that separate us. And that's why I'm so glad to be a Christian and that God opened my eyes to this. The first fact is, is that we declare and claim what Jesus declared himself that the Pharisees got so upset with that Satan can't absolutely stand, and that is he is God. He's God in the flesh. He's God. To get into God's kingdom and to live with God forever, you have to believe that Jesus is God, not just the Son of God. That's why so many won't make it in, because their occultic religion has taught them differently and taught them to deny the very thing that Satan is honored by for them to deny. And so that's just cut and dry and it's clear. And so what do you do when your own want nothing to do? His own, he came to his own, they received him not. And he, his own looked at him in the face, looked him in the eyes and said, crucify him. They rejected him, defining moment. Many of them rejected him. Third question, what do you do when people make false accusations about you? You ever had anybody make a false accusation about you? I have. You ever had anybody make a false <laughs> tell somebody you know what I'm saying it was wrong so 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 you've had that and if you get serious about serving the Lord guess what you're gonna have some more of it because many times it's an attack of the enemy but what do you do here's the third reality you don't have to do anything when you know you're in the place of God do you know that there's peace is what I'm trying to get 
When you obediently, that's all required of us, not to figure everything out, but to daily walk obedient with God, crucify our flesh, and live by the Spirit, not in our soul, not in our mind, not in our feelings, and to follow God and walk in the Spirit. So when, accus- when false accusations come about me, I don't have to tremble. Jesus wasn't trembling. Jesus wouldn't say, they're telling lies about me. Some people aren't going to follow me because of them. They posted on Facebook that I'm really not God's. They're posting all their issues on Facebook. That's where you get your problems solved. Not. Where you create more. Sorry. Uh, but anyway, not really. Uh, but, but Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't cave in fear. He wasn't all wigged out about it. He stood in confidence. He stood in calmness. What do you do when the people make false accusations about you? You don't have to do anything when you know you're in the place of God. Verse 12 through 14 Uh, But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave them no answer. Why did he he have the conversation with Pilate, but he didn't have it with the chief priests and the scribes? I'll tell you why. Because this was Pilate's defining moment to look within himself to say, what am I going to do with this man named Jesus Christ? They had already had their chance. And he knew their heart, and he knew that they didn't want anything to do with him. And he knew that they were rejecting him. So, so that's, why he, that's why Jesus could have this conversation. That's why he did with Pilate, and that's why he didn't with the chief leaders. He knew their heart. They had already made up their mind in their defining moment that they didn't want him. So he didn't even waste his breath. He didn't even take time because he knew the wickedness of their heart. And then Pilate says, do you not hear, verse 13, how many things that they testify against you? But he gave him no answer. When it referred back to them, he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge. And that's why Pilate was was amazed. He was amazed, greatly amazed, it says. So Pilate says, do you not hear? Jesus basically, I would paraphrase Jesus kind of here going, oh, I hear, but I don't fear. I hear, but I don't fear. Why? Because am I not in the place of God? That's what Joseph said to his brothers at the end when they thrown him in a pit and they wanted to kill him, except one named Reuben. They traded him off for slaves. Then he was forgotten about in jail. Then he, then he, kept, he kept his coat, but uh, I mean, he kept his character even though he lost his coat. And he didn't get mad at God and say, God, I can't believe you're doing this to me. God, why, if you're a loving God, why would you put me in this situation? Why would you allow people to lie about me? He just faithfully served God. And it's in, he said, am I not in the place of God? And Jesus was in the place of God. That's our question. Are we in the place of God? Have we done what we need to do with Jesus? And fourth and last question as the band comes and gets in place. Why would God allow one to be freed who had taken life? Think about that question. Who you want me to release to you? Jews? Great leaders of the law? Who do you want me to release to you? Jesus or Barabbas, the murderer? And the people screamed, Barabbas, that's right. The people screamed, give us Barabbas. Why would God allow, why would a holy, just God allow one who had taken life to be freed. And here's your answer. Here's your reality. Here's the reality. Of it. Here's the answer. So that one would be killed who could give life. That's why. That's why. And as you bow your head and you close your eyes and you think about that, that reality, this defining moment in the life of Christ, the defining moment in your own life. Why in the world would he do that? The people shouted, Pilate gave them an option, and they said, give us Barabbas, a murderer, man. Jesus, Jesus had never murdered anybody. 
but they had so much anger and vileness because they were looking out for good old number one and how it was rocking their world. But God, yes, he's holy. And he's a God of justice. But the attribute of God that stands out most to me, and the Bible makes clear, is greater than any other attribute, is that God is love. God is love. We sing he's a good, good father because he is a loving father. God is not sitting there with a heart trying to see how many people that he can basically bring condemnation on. God is not sitting there as our father when we're his children hoping that we make a mistake where he can can beat us down. That wouldn't be a good, good father. God does not exasperate his children or provoke them to wrath. He loves us. He loves us so much that he would allow a murderer to be freed and his son to be killed so that we could have life. That we could have life. That's why. And that's why Jesus said, destroy this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. I'll raise it up. He raised Lazarus. He raised others, but they died. No man's ever raised himself. Why would you put your faith in an occultic religion? Why would you follow the teaching of Islam and a man named Muhammad that's never mentioned in the Word of God in the Bible? Why would you follow a man named Joseph Smith? Why would people do that? Well, because they're deceived. And some of our family and some of our neighbors and some of our friends are doing it because they've possibly never heard the truth about another way. Because all they know of when they think of the church is just a building and possibly a judgmental place or probably a, or possibly a place where they were hurt. But no, not here. Not here. Different on purpose. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. Now, I want to ask you to do something real quick in here. As the Spirit, Holy Spirit just literally walks up and down these aisles and down your aisles and down your seats, here's the question. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you going to do with him? Are you going to follow him? You say, I already have. Are you? You know what the word follow means? You sure you're not a fan? Following means forsaking all. Following means denying self, taking up your cross and following. Following means falling passionately in love with him to where serving him is not a burden. Following means the joy of the Lord is your strength, even in the hardest of times. Following him means that when Sunday morning is the hardest morning to give up the bed than any other day of the week, you remember your number one relationship in your life is not your ball team, not your school, not your job. And you say, I got to, man. I get to, and I got to. <laughs> but it's a good guy to. After what he's done for me and what he means for me. So wherever you're at, but if you're here today and you would say, you know what? I have not answered that question in a way that pleases God. And I have cowed to the fear of what it was going to cost me or what my friends were going to say, or the relationship that I was going to have to break out of, 
that's not bringing honor to God. But today you're saying, I don't want to be a man pleaser. I want to be a God pleaser. And right there, the Spirit's drawing you to salvation. All you simply have to do is what Romans 10, 9 says to do, is to confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God that he died on the cross and that God raised him three days later. If that's your heart's desire, then in your heart tell Jesus right now, say, Dear God in heaven, dear Lord Jesus, you are the Son of God, and I confess that you are God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sins and come into my heart and save me right now. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Can we give God glory for those that may have prayed that? Amen. Amen. Now, if you're here and you're a Christ follower, I want to ask you, I want to ask you to make this your prayer, if it's, the, if it's really what, what you're committing to do in your heart to do. I want you to pray and tell God you will allow Him to use you in the life of His church here to make sure that a lost and dying world and the people outside these four walls know that we're different, that we're not perfect, that we're sinners saved by grace, that we don't judge you by how you look, by what you wear, by the lifestyle maybe that you're living in. But we're going to do everything to love you to Jesus. Not just when you get here, but to come to you and do everything we can to love you to Jesus. If that's you, if that's you and you know that you're willing to make the commitment to break outside your circle where everybody knows everybody. To make sure those who have never possibly received life know they're welcomed into that circle. If that's you, tell God, say, Dear God in heaven, forgive me for being so inward focused. Forgive me for being selfish and not selfless like you were. God, I humble myself to you, Lord Jesus. And I pray and I commit myself to love others on the outside with the same compassion that you love them with, Lord Jesus. And Jesus, I commit to break out of my circles where everybody knows everybody, God, here on Sundays, Wednesdays, whenever, Lord, that we're here to love those, God, that I don't know that I've never said hey to. And God, I make my commitment to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's stand to our feet. Let's celebrate. Put our hands together for what he's done for us, for the commitments that were made. Let's praise him. Let's worship him. Let's worship him, faith family members, in our, in our bringing God what is his. Let's don't steal it. Let's bring it. He said bring it. Let's bring it. Let's give above with a cheerful heart. Guess all we ask of you is just fill that guest connect card out. Leave it in your seat or drop it in these buckets. God bless you. If we can help you, we'll be right over here.